This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2103, down low in Hell's Kitchen, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room. I am your host, Anthony Roman. We are so happy to be here talking about episode 2103, Down Low in Hell's Kitchen. Today on the program, you're not going to believe it, the one and only Dick Wolf sits down and gets into the evolution of SVU with us and what's happening in TV at the moment. After that, our guest star, you may know him as Mathis Brooks. We also know him as L. Steven Taylor. He spends a lot of time on Broadway in The Lion King, but he's hanging out on the squad room today. And finally, we sit down with the co-writers of the episode, Monet Hurst-Mendoza and Brendan Feeney, and we get a little insight about the world they were trying to create on Down Low in Hell's Kitchen. So get ready, it's going to be a good one. And all this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. Today, we are honored to have Dick Wolf on the podcast. And thank you so much for coming on the squad room. Well, my pleasure to man. be here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Obviously, it's a record breaking season, even though you broke your own record. The evolution of the show in the 21 seasons, did you have any idea it would move in this direction? Well, you never know what's going to either move or move the dial or just go in a different direction. The most amazing thing about the show was it was a two-hander with Chris and Mariska, and they were perfect partners. It was deemed a catastrophe at NBC when Chris decided to leave. There was a school of thought that that this would be the last year of the show, the one after he left. And it went from a two-hander to a single lead drama and succeeded. And that is due really solely to Mariska's power and energy as number one on the call sheet. And she is indefatigable, tireless, obsessed. But there are so many things you can say about what Mariska has done. I mean, we were doing these stories 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. They're all different, but they're all remarkably similar in the damage they do. I'd say that is one of the things that the show has done extraordinarily well is show the cost of sex crimes. And it goes, in many cases, far beyond the individual victim. It's a a rock in a very, very quiet pond. And it causes transformations in both good and bad in people. And the show has explored those extremely successfully, and it's continuing to, that the first episode this season, to me, was remarkable. Ian McShane has been one of my favorite actors for 40 years. He did a show for the BBC, I don't know how long ago it was, called Lovejoy, which was a drama about an antiques dealer who solved crimes. One of my favorite shows ever. And he's just a hugely, hugely talented actor. And to get him for the first episode is what has happened almost innumerable times in terms of getting in guest stars 
that end up winning Emmys. You know, it's very satisfying. So, obviously, when Mariska, when you cast her, you knew she was a great actress. Did you ever imagine that someone could be like oh, you, a, you can I imagine it. Yeah. She was going to be a great actress. Right. The only thing that I really remember her in at all was the arc on ER. And, you know, she was good, but you never know if anybody's going to have the legs to make it through five seasons, let alone 20. We're at 21 now. And my biggest hope is it'll go 25. And then we'll look at it and say, now or... But I think as long as the writing stays at this level, definitely up for getting there too. It's very much with everybody on both sides of the camera, mutual admiration society. I mean, Warren, I don't know which season this is, six, seven. Julie has been here longer, but they've cycled through other shows in the company. Like Warren ran Criminal Intent for four years, three, four years. It feels like he's been around since the beginning, but I think he's only been around for around the last 17, 18 years in the company in various shows. And it's a lot better when it's family. And this is part of the family. The writing staff, especially, obviously, Warren and Julie, Norberto, the producers, we've all worked together for a long time. It really does help. With Mariska, as far as you didn't know if she'd be a great actress, and obviously she turned out to be. But someone becoming such an important figure to so many people and a show that would function in the manner that this show does as catharsis, was that anything you could foresee or...? Hope. Hope. It was the one thing more so than almost any other show is if you look at the pilot, it A, still holds up, but it doesn't feel like a pilot that everybody hit the ground as if they had been together for a couple of years already. I mean, there is no sense of awkwardness or people being uncomfortable with what they were doing or not sure what they were doing. And the pilot really is the blueprint for everything the show was and has become. In the interview, in the, that when I interviewed Warren and Mariska, they talked about in the pilot making Olivia a product of rape. They felt like that was the key to the, and they're basically still working mm -hmm. from that concept. When you wrote that, did you know you had something kind of magical? Yeah. yeah. Right. I didn't know if it was magical. I knew it was something that would resonate because it resonated on the page and on the stage. So, which is the most you can ever hope for. Yeah, she said that when she read it, that was the thing. And Warren's like, we're basically just going well, on yeah. that concept, you know, for 21 years. But as you talk about the changes, I know you've said before that everyone is replaceable. And you've proven that with your shows. People come and go. And Marisha is not replaceable. Besides Marisha. <laughs> um, but, but everyone around her has changed. It's not, there, she's the only original cast member. When a change is coming, are you concerned like when Chris leaves and then you and Warren bring in new people is are you concerned about that working or do sure. you sure you're concerned about everything you're concerned about the weather because you have to be I mean if it's not me it's Warren or Peter or Arthur who runs post that all the way down the production line people are obsessive and that's what I do best as a producer is I hire obsessive people. And, you know, the, the people don't understand that this is 
a minimum 40 week a year gig and people it's not just the actors basically everybody is working 12 to 16 hours a day for months at a time it's phenomenal to keep the the quality level at the quality level that this show has been now going into its third decade is pretty spectacular Obviously, New York City has changed tremendously over the uh, last couple of decades. Right? Yeah. I'm from here, so I've seen, I've seen it too. happen, and you are too. Yeah. Do you feel that the show is able to change with that? And are people able to see that? I think. Uh, look, the show does not live outside; it lives inside. It's not. You know, we don't do car chases down Fifth Avenue. There's none of the eye candy that you can have in cop shows. This is serious stuff that's being discussed. The city is nodded to in terms of major changes that take place, but the biggest attribute of New York is it's a New York state of mind. And much more than the physical reality, it's an emotional, uh, mental game that people are playing every week. That the city is, strangely enough, that we always used to say that uh, the city is the seventh character in Law & Order. It's really not an SVU, because the thing that's universal about SVU is the very area that we're exploring. So the gentrification, all the change, they really have very little to do with what you're... No, you're, people you're are not. still doing the same awful things to each other. Would you say there's any difference in how the earlier episodes were put together? Are the scenes longer or shorter as the demographic you're going not, through? I, I don't think that there has been a discernible effort to increase or decrease the number of scenes. You know, it's basically you've got now five acts instead of four, but it's how much you can shove into the five-pound bag. And what do you think about characters having their own personal stories outside of the what's going on within the show? How does that work into the show for you? As little as possible. <laughs> no, it's it sounds cynical, but all the writers know that this is a workplace show. It is really, it exists within that reality. I mean, if the storytelling is working, you really don't want to cut away to something totally different. Do you feel that that structure and what you've done, do you see its influence on other shows? Do you pay attention to it? There's so many. Shows? I mean, you've influenced so many. Do you see them? Do you watch them? Do you, do you pay attention? <laughs> the horrible reality is last year there were 470 scripted shows on television. And it's happens. it happens on a weekly basis. Have you seen such and such? Not only haven't I seen it, I've never even heard of it. I mean, and that brings me to another question because there's all this talk about how TV has changed and all, and the, the way people watch TV has changed and stuff. But you have continued to do what you do and almost like the gentrification of America and has nothing to do with your No, approach. I'm very happy with the current status quo because there's less competition in network television. I mean, basically, the only other guy who's doing what I'm doing right now is Greg Berlanti. Multiple hour-long dramas doing 22 episodes. You know, when dinosaurs walk the earth, it's uh, not the future. It's the future is in streaming. But it's an entirely different business. Right. These eight-episode seasons. And, and Look, it's, 
it resonates in ways that people haven't comprehended yet. That the old ways of making shows are things are getting cut away and cut away and cut away and cut away. You know, when you're doing eight episodes, you don't need a writing staff. Most of my EPs who are showrunners maybe would hire one other person, but probably write all eight themselves. Yeah. I mean, you are, you're lucky if you get 10. It's like, a, yeah. you know, it's a completely different approach. And after five years, they've got 50 episodes or 40, and I've got 110. Right. When you think about streaming or when do you think about the way people watch, does it change anything? Oh, it changes a lot. When you're doing that few episodes, you better have eight barn burners because you've got no room for boredom or failure. If you're doing 22, a good season 10 years ago would be four that you think might get an Emmy nomination, four that you never want to see again, and 14 that are in the hash marks. You know, good episode, mediocre episode, hopefully not bad. That's in the bottom four. But the ratio is different when you've got eight. You'd better hit on seven out of the eight or you ain't coming back. Right. But you must think that's rather easy, right, to make eight? Yeah, it's also very expensive. Right. It resonates all the way down the line. You don't have the freedom to try things. You have a responsibility to keep it inside that narrow track that people seem to want out of that particular show. But you better make sure it all makes sense as a very small entity in a vast universe of scripted programming. So with Warren, he was on Criminal Intent. Then he came actually right after Chris. That was his first season. He did a bunch of seasons. Now he's come back. Showrunners, it's unusual, right, for him to come and go. Um, Yeah, but there is a time-honored tradition in this company of people stick around. They'll go off. They'll try to do their own show. They'll do something else, and they come back. Right. Um, just talk about working with him. What, what do you, how does Warren? Yeah. Here's an insight that Warren is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And it's not just here. Here's a factoid that he got a full ride to Stanford when he was 16 as a math prodigy, not the normal background for a dramatic, uh, writer in television. He's got an oversized brain that he has, uh, frankly, used to my advantage for a lot of seasons on various shows. Yeah. You know, he is an incredibly good writer who continually goes deeper, and that's certainly the secret of his success, I think. He is incredibly hardworking and gets it. I don't know how else to succinctly say it, and... He and Julie have known each other for decades, and she is a huge anchor to Windward for him. Yeah. It's very, very good combination. Do you share his incredibly uh, delusional loyalty to the Knicks? Oh, God. It's really sad. We went to a Knicks game this year, and they got the crap kicked out of them. Go Clippers. What can I (laughs) say? You switch? Yeah. Did you grow up going to Nick games? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's so loyal, Warren. And I'm just I know. Like, you know we, we have but, things happening in Brooklyn. You look, know, he, he, Warren, 
is a Knicks fan, and Peter Jankowski, who is the president of the company, is a Buffalo Bills fan. So he's just been now breathing pure ether. It's not going to last past. He had 10 minutes of hope this year with the Mets, Warren. And then, you know, I told him, I said, this is not going to end well. No. And it just... It ended really ugly. You said 25 you would consider stopping. Is that really true, though? No, I wouldn't (laughs) consider stopping. But I have an actress that has to remain enthusiastically involved. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, I think she will, and I think you'll continue on forever. (laughs) Dick Wolf, thank you so much for coming on the squad. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. And now, I'll step into the dressing room with L. Steven Taylor to discuss his portrayal of the multi-layered Mathis Brooks. One quick thing. I co-wrote and co-produced Mathis' song, Summer Sweat, which you can hear playing in the opening scene at the bar. Steven came and sang on it. This guy does it all. We're going to touch on that as well during our talk. We're here in the squad room and our guest is L. Steven Taylor, fresh from Paris, rolled in and this is the first thing he did since he's back. Is that right? Yeah. It's the first order of business. Here. Yep. First yeah. order of business. I appreciate you coming in. The episode Down Low in Hell's Kitchen, mm-hmm. you have quite a role in that and there's a lot going on. Yeah. And what we think is going on. Yeah. It's not actually what's going on. Yeah. And your uh, character, Mathis, what level of fame would you perceive him to be? Where is he in his career? I mean, I think that uh, he's not fully, like his potential is not fully realized when we meet him. I think that he's kind of just hit his stride. You know, we see him when he's just about to take over the world. Given that what he does, you're trying to figure out the motivation for what he does because sure. it, you know, if it's a, it's hard to understand what he's getting at. And I was wondering how you went about portraying somebody that has several layers of mystery. Yeah, I, you know, secrets, <laughs> secrets, mystery, like all the things, um, in my opinion, I think society's like relationship with uh, LGBTQ community is, you know, problematic at best. And you'd magnify that like times 100 in the black community. So you get a lot of closeted individuals who aren't able to live their truth, uh, you know, out loud. And so that leads people like Mathis to do a lot of things that, you know, that are kind of unsavory. And so a lot of his decisions to do some of the things that he does in the episode are based in that reality. Like that's a real thing that happens in, you know, in the real world. But I think that he is excited to reveal his sexuality because like for the first time, now I don't have to live a lie. And, you know, much to his surprise, you know, he has the support of his fans and he feels more supported uh, in making that decision. So I think that that's one of the things that motivated him to... uh, go ahead and reveal that information. Right. In a sense, what he did, which was a lie, enabled him to do that. And then also enabled them to catch the bad guy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, so the entire thing, I mean, skipping ahead a little bit, like the fact that he doesn't ever reveal that he lied, you know what I mean? I think that for him, or at least the way that I played the character, there is some truth, and like I says in the in that final scene, it's like there is some truth in what uh, in something that happened to him. We just don't know what that is, and so in my mind, there were layers of truth hidden in that ultimate big lie. You know what I mean? So it was more for me about not what he did 
or the lie that he told, but it's the experiences, like you said, the experiences that led him to make those decisions. So you think what he lied about in some way actually happened to him? Yeah, I do. That's the way that I played it anyway, honestly. And this is something like as an ally to the community um, was important to me. It was mostly about those experiences. Like these experiences are real, like I said before. And so the fact that they choose not to focus on what ever it is that he did or the lie that he told and more about what that experience was i think that that's what uh that's what you know brings some truth and some honesty to this particular experience and then you add on top of that the scene you put ice and mathis together and these are two black men ice i'm sure is you know because of his uh relationship with his son and the history with his you know his son and hiding his sexuality on the show understands a little bit of what Mathis is going through. And then there also is some context, you know, him being a black man, he knows what black gay men, especially from neighborhoods that probably Mathis grew up in, you know, and the black church and like all of those things, like, you know, Ice would know that or his uh, his character Ben would know those things. And so I think that that is part of what made it so powerful to me. It's like black man to black man talking about these things out in the open, which is not something that happens. No, I agree. I, I think it was a really, really nice scene. And I, I'm glad the decisions were made to not expand, like to keep it where it was. Um, do you have a favorite scene in the episode? Is that your favorite scene? Actually, one of my favorite things that happened on this episode actually was when the cameras weren't rolling. With Curtis and Timothy, I'm a big Revenge of the Nerds fan. And so I got so to So you're happy to be with Booger. Oh, my God like crazy and Poindexter. So we were like, they were on oh, the Oh, he's the director. Yeah. Yes. Right, yeah, right, right, right. yeah. So it was, we did the Revenge of the Nerds rap when the, uh, when the cameras weren't rolling, uh, they let me do the rap with them in the car. And that was probably my favorite thing that happened on the episode. But as far as scenes go, there was a scene that in the script is actually like two lines and Mathis is being interviewed or he's giving a portion of the interview on uh, on the camera and it's literally like two uh, like two lines to the camera and that's it. So Timothy Busfield, uh, our director, he proceeded to give me an impromptu 12 minute interview about just about, or Mathis gave Mathis an interview, like a real, <laughs> like we were on a talk show um, and for an actor, I mean, I'm somebody who likes to prepare things, who likes to read the script, who likes to do the, you know, do the homework. So to go off the cuff like that, I think that it, and that was right before the scene with Ice, uh, you know, he asked me some really tough questions about Mathis and how he was feeling post, you know, coming out and his experience with the rape. Uh, and so I think that that helped set up that last scene in a way that probably wouldn't happen if we just would have, done what was on the page. So that was probably my favorite scene is him just giving me these impromptu, uh, these impromptu questions because I feel like it made me really relate to the character. Because there's not a lot of improvising that goes on, on on SVU, right? No, I mean... You're moving pretty quick, right? Yeah, every, you know, I mean, and, and you have to because there, there are so many moving parts. Uh, but, you know, he said something interesting to me. He said, give me something to work with. This is actually... Uh, when we were doing the bar scene, he said, you know, what's on the page is what's on the page, but give me something that's not on the page to work with. And if I need to pull you back, then I'll do that. And to have that kind of license and freedom. Uh, what do you do? What did you do? Well, 
you know, it was actually as a, a colleague of mine um, in the Broadway community. So we already knew each other. And it was when he was uh, he was coming and hitting on me in the bar. And he yeah. was getting real handsy uh, and doing those things. So what's on the page, you know, is, hey, man, back up. You know, it's like that kind of situation. And that's basically, you know, it. And then I kind of walk off. But he just kind of let the cameras roll and let us kind of you know, get in each other's face a little bit right. and kind of uh, kind of the back and forth. And it's, uh, you really don't get that kind of license normally in yeah. a show like this. That's great. Yeah. The performance is outstanding. And I, I feel like maybe these things just, you know, they help to get it to that level that, yeah. that it really hit. And yeah. I was wondering if you thought your manager was telling the truth when he was saying he didn't really know what was going on with you. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I was talking to the writers uh, actually about that, and I think that he doesn't believe Mathis. You know what I mean? I think that he believes it. You know that he knows that Mathis concocted this whole, you know, this whole story. But still, I have to kind of uh, maintain because the real life situation that this may or may not be <laughs> based on uh, is that was the whole thing. Like when he came out and said what he said, it's not that all of these things are outlandish, like that they couldn't happen. These things happen to actual people, you know, in our episode, they just maybe didn't happen to right. Mathis. That's right. But even still, like nobody believed him. You know what I mean? And so it was like almost immediately after stuff wasn't adding up for the person who <laughs> this character may or may not be based on, uh, people immediately kind of just turned on him. And so I had to maintain that even in spite of like all of these people around Mathis yeah. and manager, you know, manager included, not believing him that, you know, there is some truth to what he was saying. We just don't know how much. What I think is fascinating is that if you don't, even we said it before, but if you don't concoct this story, mm -hmm. the, you know, they don't catch Moran. Right? Yeah. So I think it's just great writing and it's an interesting uh, way that the story moves. I guess the last thing is for the listeners of the podcast, they probably don't know that you and I collaborated <laughs> on a song. And well, I collaborate. I just came in and did the thing. You sang. And me and uh, my partner, James Shuto, we were stunned by your, you know, we were like, we need two hours in the studio to do a vocal. And we really, we probably needed about six minutes with you. You were just. Uh, I actually didn't know that I was going to be singing on the episode at all. <laughs> See? It was not part of my uh, audition or, or anything. I didn't know. I thought actually when Warren and uh, I thought that they were joking when Warren and Timothy said, so we're going to give you the song and then you're going to sing it. I was like, ha ha ha, you know, right. like they're joking. And then they said, no, are, are you good with that? And I was like, oh, wait, for real? Yeah, yeah. Now, Warren it, Warren will get music in there if he can, whenever that. he can. That That's his thing. He's always trying to figure out a way to incorporate music. But so, yeah, we wrote a song, Summer Sweat. He sings it. It's right in the opening. We hear it playing when you're in the club or yeah. the bar. Yeah. And um, we're hoping that we can maybe get it out there a little bit on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. I feel like we got a hit on our hands. Man. We do. I it feel like came we got out a quite well. Uh, Monet wrote the lyrics. Let's make sure we, everybody <laughs> gets their credits. But L. Steven, thank you so much for coming on the Squad Room. Appreciate and, it. Thanks, uh, for, thanks having for doing a song with me. And yeah, yeah I, I look forward to collaborating with you. Let's again. do it again. Let's do it again. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. Cool. So episode twenty one hundred three was written by Lisa Cullen, Monet Hurst Mendoza, and Brendan Feeney. Lisa Cullen is very busy at the moment with episode 2107, but I was lucky enough to sit down with Monet Hurst-Mendoza and Brendan Feeney. Here's our talk.
We're here on the squad room with Monet and Brendan, the co-writers of Down Low in Hell's Kitchen. And we're going to talk about what happened in the episode. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, Yeah, I think it kind of all happened organically when we were um, throwing out ideas for the episode. You know, the down low community is something that we haven't really explored on the show before. And I think this episode provided us a good uh, opportunity to explore, you know, what the different scenarios are in that community. You know, we have gay men who are also African-American who have families or for whatever reason they don't feel comfortable enough to come out. And I think that was something we wanted to explore, you know, through the vein of this crime that is occurring. And uh, also in terms of our our main guest character, Mathis, we're very interested in somebody who's, it's not as black and white as either the victim survivor or the perpetrator. And that there's maybe something deeper going on beneath the surface that we then go and explore throughout the episode. Yeah, because the structure is a little different than usual, where you kind of know who committed the crime right. midway right. through. So going back to what you're saying, it's, it's probably hard to come up with a new setting, a new situation, because there's been so many of these. And I felt like this was something I had not seen before on the show. And the teaser, besides the crime, there's the B story with Noah and Olivia. What were you trying to do story-wise with that, which is kind of in the beginning and in the end, we see that developing. Yeah, I think... Um so I'm an, I'm one of the new writers in the room. So I believe it was it the season before or two before the actual actor uh, who plays Noah, uh, Ryan Buggle, he's an actual dancer. And I heard that he had wanted to incorporate dancing into his... He had uh, a whole pitch. His, yeah, he had a whole pitch for his... <laughs> uh, which I thought was really impressive because he's like nine years old and he had like a whole pitch. So when we were discussing, you know, what the storyline would be for Benson, for her personal life, uh, that was something that uh, was brought up. Um, and so we kind of just took it and ran with it. And it, I think it also... Um, corresponds with this theme that we were playing with is, uh, you know, how can you live your authentic self? How can you, you know, break the mold and do the things that you've always wanted to do, but maybe society, you know, doesn't understand, uh, would not want you to pursue, um, you know, and it's unfortunately still controversial for boys who want to dance. Right. So I, I think it's something that hopefully will will stick. I think it's a really strong plot point for and for the family. Yes, and we, we always like it when we can relate, because you don't often get to explore the main character's personal lives for too long, because you've got to get into the story and the, you know, the crime of the week, what have you. Warren um, was saying it's the first thing to go if you're over. Yes, yes. absolutely, <laughs> which is unfortunate because, you know, everybody loves these characters and you love to, to, to learn about them, but we have, we only have so much time. So it really does help when whatever personal story of the characters we're exploring, it relates in some way to the overall themes of the episode of the of the crime and what we're going to find out at the end. And that that happened here. They, you know, they were we were able to relate what was going on with Noah and his his own realization that, you know, baseball is just not for me. I'm playing it because that's what the other kids are playing, but that's just not who I am. And having the the guts to tell his mother you know, I kind of like this dance is what I'm, I'm way more interested in, and it appeals to me far more than pretending I like baseball. And Benson, while it comes as a surprise, you know, we see by the end, because the crime occurs and, you know, she's, she's got other things on her mind, but it becomes very clear at the end that she supports him 100% and that, you know, this is just this is Benson being a good mom. 
the new chief, how are you trying to convey him and his relationship to everybody? Oh, Chief Garland. Um, He's definitely like a more thoughtful, pragmatic chief that I think we've seen. Um, It's just like another side of law enforcement, probably one that we don't see very often, but probably one that we hope to have. And of course, uh, you know, Damore Barnes, the actor, he's just got such like a soothing calm voice. It, it just sort of brings like a different energy. Um, everything he says is very deliberate. He's very apolitical, which is, which is different for somebody in his position. He's not about hitting numbers and quotas, and it's a great attitude for somebody in that position to have. Um, it's rare. But uh, Monet alluded to it. Uh, Damore, who plays Garland, is absolutely a great guy. He's spent a lot of time talking about the character with Warren months before we ever, you know, started writing his character, giving him dialogue. So a lot of his methodical thought process and his background, which we haven't even really gotten into yet, but it is established, comes straight from Damore himself. Mm-hmm. Warren kind of says, this is the type of guy he is, and then you you craft it out of that? Like, yeah, it- especially with a character who's going to recur, who's going to be kind of part of our stable of people. It's not just a, an, a guest character who's coming for one or two episodes. This is a guy who's really going to be a part of our world. And so that takes a bit more crafting than just your given plot session for one episode. You know, This is something where you really have to sit down with whoever's going to play that character, Warren and Julie, and whoever's going to be writing his first appearance, and, all right, this is how we establish this guy. This is who he is. It may not all come out in this episode. We're going to dribble little bits and pieces of that throughout the well, season. We get, we get a vibe. But, yeah, we, this yeah. is, this is, and we want him to, we really want him to make an impression from the second he, he appears on camera, and he absolutely does, yeah. Yeah. So all these puzzle pieces that you have to put together, I mean, what, what is the process? How long does it take to do? Because it sounds like it's quite involved, right? I mean, right. Several yeah. weeks, you know, you have to research, um, get a story idea together. And then, um, you know, we plot with Warren and Julie. Um, and then we have to, you know, do a beat sheet. That beat sheet gets approved. Then we start writing scenes. And then it goes through several drafts before, you know, we get to, uh, you know, our read through with our actors and start filming. So it's several weeks long. And on this one, we had the luxury of we were we were plotting it and, and writing it uh, before the season had started. Yes. So we come in, you know, a month or six weeks before we start shooting, and that's when, you know, we're completely unencumbered, and you can focus on, you know, six different episodes a day with Warren and Julie, and they can have a bunch of plates spinning. I mean, they always have a bunch of plates spinning in the air, but at least here, it's just us. And, not and it's all about, say. yeah, it's all about... It's all about plotting episodes and getting people going, and you just, it's a nice time to be able to, some, because as the season progresses, you don't have six, eight weeks anymore. You know, sometimes you have, you have to be writing a script in, in 10 days. And they're yeah. looking at cuts, and they're like, exactly. mm-hmm. they're going to Their time is very yeah. much divided. You guys got to make a little post headline, right? A little pun? Was that? Yes, yes Aegon. Did, you, did you enjoy that? That was very, very... There were many more than the ones that you saw. I'm on sure. The, for so writers, there, that yeah, must have been... That yeah. is kind of a... You don't often... Because uh, you're so focused on the bigger picture and the narrative structure of the script itself. It's really fun just to, you know, when you get the email, like, hey, we need some post headlines. Can you guys come or up with Or when you some? need some lyrics to a song. Yes. yes. Something different, right? Something yeah. to take you kind of out of the, yes. 
That was fun. Yeah, that was fun. And uh, Stephen is yes, Stephen was wonderful voice. Fantastic. That guy's got some musical chops. Yeah. I just want to thank you for coming on, and I'm sure I'm going to be talking to you again as the season progresses. Thank you. You guys write more episodes. I've listened to many podcasts. I've never been featured on one, so this is a treat. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So that's a wrap for the squad room. Wow. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, get ready. Ice tea is coming by. That's right, ice tea. And we've been hearing from you a lot. We want to hear from you more. Please find us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and Wolf Ent. The Squad Room was hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman, and is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. And as always, it's brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We'll see you next week. 